the western sky was blue as could be and that's what I was seeing in my house as I was getting ready for work but the minute I got out to the driveway there was this black cloud like a bomb had exploded over the Sierras. Welcome to Gray Area and our special year-end episode. I'm Julie Reynolds-Martinez. As the days reach their shortest and coldest extremes here in the Northern Hemisphere, humans of every culture find reasons to come together and celebrate holidays, traditions, and community. And so for this episode, we reached out to three people who've been separated from their communities, whether by their own actions, by force, or by happenstance. We asked them what they do to reclaim and redefine the spirit of community in the face of imprisonment, disaster, racism, or displacement. So here are some of their tips for making your white Christmas just a little more gray. Here's Gilbert, a man who resurrects the memories of his grandmother's affection in a very creative and comforting way. My name is Gilbert Bale. I'm 45 years old. I'm a certified drug and alcohol counselor in a substance abuse program at Solidad Prison. I'm currently serving a 27 years to life sentence. So I grew up, I grew up raised by my grandmother, and she had custody of me from before the age of 10. So growing up, I remember her being in the kitchen with me, and she would be making tamales, especially on the holidays, either Christmas or on uh, New Year's. So, growing up since a little kid, she always had me helping her grind the chiles or cutting the meat or putting the masa on the corn husk. Different things, you know, every year just... You have 60 seconds remaining. And as I grew up, you know, years later, I realized that it wasn't so much an instruction where, like in a classroom where somebody sits you down and gives you instruction on how to make know a recipe or something but it was more of a culture that I grew up in where this is what we did on the holidays. Years later in prison serving a life sentence the first couple years I started realizing all the things that you have 30 seconds remaining were probably never going to be the same or I never had an opportunity to do again and one of them was all the different traditions we had in my family you know since I was growing up especially eating tamales. So the first couple of years, I met a couple of guys that made them on the yard, and it was like top ramen wrapped in some beans. And they told me that was a tamale, so I said, that has got to be better ways to make them. And from there, the recipe started to develop. You know, I, I started... Uh... Do you want to call me back? Oh. Okay, so the first time somebody told me they made tamales in... And I'm in prison, I'm like, This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. What he does is he gets the top ramen, he makes a little hole in the bag and pours hot water so it can soften the noodle. And he doesn't use the uh, seasoning pack in it. He had cooked a little bit of like dehydrated beans. And once the beans got cooked, he splits open the ramen and puts the bean in it and just kind of rolls it up where it looks like a tamale as far as wrapped up and it has something in it, but it obviously did not taste nothing like a tamale. But I appreciated the generosity of him keeping somehow his tradition or what he used to do alive by finding a way to do it. And I figured, man, my ingenuity, I know I could find a better way of doing this. So I 
went to the canteen, the, the prison store, and I got the store list and I said, man, what can I get out of here where I could maybe find another way of repackaging it so that I could make it into like a masa and maybe some meat for inside, the tamale and just different ingredients that I can get it closer to what my memories were. The journey started from there, and once the journey started, it, it, it was like every year I was finding a better, faster, and a, in a way where it tasted a lot better, and the consistency was a lot more uh, closer to my memory. We made our first batch of tamales, and there was little chunks of potato chip, and we ate it, and I said, oh, <laughs> so we learned the lesson, you got to crush them all the way down. So I learned that spending about 45 minutes per bag of chips, crushing it, uh, 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 sitting on the floor in the cell, crushing it. I was like, this is gonna take a lot more work than we thought. But I realized at that moment that I remember my grandma, like she spent all day, sometimes two days preparing the tamales. So I said, maybe, maybe we gotta incorporate that. That's another part of this. And I started realizing that spending the time and those memories I had of my grandma and like the gift for having me in the kitchen and talking to me and you know me watching her do it was just as important as me being in the cell and sharing time with my Sally and us talking about maybe stories we had about our families and eating tamales or even menudo and the different things that we did you know growing up making the masa I was like okay we got the masa down now it's about the size, the proportion of the tamale. So the first couple of years, they were like all kind of different sizes because I didn't have like a way to make them all the same size. But I found a cereal bowl one time that it was a perfect radius, the roundness of it. I said, well, maybe if I put the cereal bowl upside down and smash it down, it took the excess masa up, they'd be perfectly round. And I could get a uniform size of the tamale, and I was like, oh, that'll work. So from that year forward, yeah, the, the tamales were like, now they're uniform. So I got the consistency of the masa, now they're the same size. It's like, all right, now we're starting to get somewhere. They're starting to look like, the tamales I ate at home, you know, they, they were always the same, pretty much the same size. So we got that down. Uh, the meat, you know, different prisons, different times. Sometimes we had canned food at some prisons, some prisons it's pouch food. So sometimes it's shredded beef, sometimes it's chunks of beef, sometimes there's no beef and I had to use summer sauce. Oh, another big important part of making the tamale too was figuring out a way because we don't have the cornhusk. Well, if I don't have the cornhusk, how are we going to roll it? So we have like porters where they clean the tiers and the showers and the buildings when we live. And they get the trash bags from the trash can. So I would ask them for a couple bags. And what I do is I cut them up by like eight by eight squares. I'll roll up the mattress, put it on the top bunk, and we use the bottom bed basically like a table. So we'll disinfect the bed, they pass out disinfectant once a week. And then what I do is when I cut the plastics, I lay the plastic eight by eight squares down. Sometimes eight at a time. And then me and my family will get down on the on the floor and use the bottom bunk as a table. Once I make the uh, circle of masa and I use the cereal bowl to cut out the excess, I lay down the meat, the beans, jalapenos, I'll put jalapenos in there. If I have cheese, I'll use the cheese. 
And what I do is when I roll them, because the bag is wet, when I fold plastic on top of plastic, water makes it stick, almost like glue. After they're wrapped in the plastic squares, the tamales each go into their own watertight bag. These all go into a big plastic bin, the kind you use to store things under the bed. The bin is filled with water. The next problem Gilbert faced was coming up with a way to cook them. Gilbert uses 600-watt immersion heaters, those tiny little appliances made for travelers to stick in a cup of water and heat it up. California prisons no longer allow inmates to buy them, but quite a few long-timers still have them around. So you stick a few of those into the water and let everything simmer for three to four hours. Then, after two days of work, the tamales are done. Everybody on the tier knows I make them, so they're already like, as soon as December gets here, they're like, hey, I'll pitch in. Let's make some tamales. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. When I make them, I like to, that's my little gift. You have 60 seconds remaining. I'll give them, you know, a couple, maybe two each. So sometimes it just depends. I'll make anywhere from about 40 to 60 each year. So I, I, I want to eat them all day. Obviously, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, me and my family, we're going to eat all day. We're going to watch sports and eat tamales instead of going to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it just depends. Uh, it depends on because there's... You have 30 seconds remaining. They take two days to make. So it's a lot of work. And if my family's willing to help me and learn how to make them, then that, that helps out a lot. The 20 years that I've been in prison, all the different families I've had where I've... You know, on those holidays on Christmas when we made them, it was pretty cool because it was something I was able to share with my family and he and him share with me and, you know, and I've developed relationships. So, you know, the tamales kind of develop and depend on what prison I'm at. And That's the thing about prison phone calls. You can't just call back. I was hoping to keep chatting with Gilbert, but his prison went on lockdown for weeks and he hasn't been able to call. But I sure hope this season's tamales come out great. Now here's a tale of our friend Claudia finding community where she'd been told she didn't belong. She talks here about what she learned when she got her DNA tested through 23andMe. Claudia Melendez Salinas. I live in Salinas, California. I'm a writer, journalist, a mama bear, a cat lover. I grew up in a family that took a lot of pride in claiming that we came from Spain. And I'm sure that that's something that happens in a lot of families in Mexico. We grew up revering the fact that we came from Spain and we refused to believe we're Indians and we're never told we're Indian. We are always told, oh no. That was a commentary that was in my family all the time. Oh no, no, we, we're not from here. We, we came from Spain. and We have this very big history of Papa Medardo. That's my great, great grandfather who came from Spain and was tall and red-haired and blonde and beautiful. Nothing like the Indians. So being told by DNA testing that I am more than 60% from this continent 
was not a shock, but it was it was it was different than the history that was told growing up. I'm a dark-skinned person, and I grew up feeling really angry about being told, you know, you look like Indian, or and angry not because I don't like being Indian, or I did back then. You know, if you revere being a Spaniard and you don't look like one. You feel bad about that, but at the same time, you realize at some point that it's impossible to look like something you're not. Claudia is a reporter, novelist, and poet, and in her writing, she reclaims the symbol of the nopal, Mexican's iconic prickly pear cactus, as an emblem of pride and strength. I just wrote a poem. It's called Tengo el nopal en la frente, because when people tell you in Mexico that tienes el nopal en la frente, that means you're Indian. And no matter what you do, you look like one. And it's meant as an insult. And when I wrote that, I was thinking, you know what? It should not be an insult to be an Indian. And so I wrote that poem trying to reclaim that part that is supposed to be an insult and make it a badge of honor. Because it should be a badge of honor to be from this land. It is for me. I carry an opal on my forehead, undeniable sign of my origin, Mixteca, Cochimí, Miwok, 60% Tenochtitlan, 30% Isola Delva. I carry an opal on my forehead, the cactus that told Nahuatlacuas they had arrived home, to the lake of abundance of eagles and snakes, a place for hunting and rest. That ironic nopal paints my face the color of earth, of clay, of copal, of corn and squash blossom, of epazote and guasontle, of nochli and etl, of cacahuatl, chocolatl, guajolotl, and aucatl. So Day of the Dead is a tradition that I try to keep, uh, that is very important to me. That's probably the biggest one. Having my altar for my relatives is important to me. Um, and eating indigenous food too, I like doing that. You know, eating corn with calabazas and jitomate, chile. And if that's, that's, that's a tradition, but it's like eating from these lands. So this whole year has been really interesting as far as like rediscovering. And one thing that I've been doing more and more is like whenever I can, like if I'm, have book presentations or things like that. I try to wear native garments from Mexico and beads and things like that. And when I pray, because I, I, you know, if I pray, I pray to ancestors. But I think it's important to me because what I think now is that we're here because the ancestors were able to put up with a lot of shit. You know, they're very resilient. And so it means more to me to be thankful to them than it means to be thankful to a deity that I don't see. And I don't see the ancestors, but I feel them in my bones. My DNA is their DNA, and the DNA that, that got me here is their DNA of struggle and survival. I do try to go to um, celebrations that have like Aztec dancing and burning of the sage. I think that that would be the most original to this land. I really dislike 
the gift giving part of Christmas. I think it's so commercial. <laughs> it really just drives me nuts because you feel obligated to give. You don't want to give and the people give you and you feel like a jerk for not giving back. And so that kind of bugs the hell out of me. You know, Christmas we got together and had dinner and gave kisses to baby Jesus and that was it. But we never really did gift exchanging. So, so it wasn't, yeah, it's something I didn't grow up with and it makes me very uncomfortable in this country. I like putting um, Christmas tree and Nacimiento, the crash. You know, it's, it's interesting because that's the European part, right? You can't really get rid of it. Um, I mean, I am 30% European, Southern European, so it's, 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 it's really interesting because I think the next step for me is just reconciling that. You can't, I'm not pure Native American. I'm, you know, 30% European, so I have to make make peace with that and one thing I've been thinking a lot about that is that the the Indians who probably who survived the best were those who were incorporated into the into the mestizaje so it made my ancestors survive so maybe that's something I have to be grateful for and acknowledge for Christmas my grandma always cooked this this fish dish, ¿cómo se llama este? Bacalao. My grandma always cooked bacalao for dinner, for Christmas dinner. And when I think back about the traditions, that was the one thing that my grandma always had to have for Christmas, bacalao. And I never really liked it. None of the kids liked it because when you're young, your your palate is too young, and you don't want to be tasting that burst of strong flavors. But I think about it, and I think that that's a dish that probably I'm sure that is that came from Spain because that's a that's a Spanish fish. But at the same time, it's infused with tomato, which is it's Mexican, it's native. So you have these dishes that are so interconnected, and they're so so much of a fusion, right? And so I don't know. I just think it's interesting how our tradition is really like as intertwined as we ourselves as people are. Nopal of Sacapuashclas defeating the French, of Tlaxcaltecas making alliances with Cortés of Malinzi giving birth to Martin, of Coyosauki hunting Cuatlicue, Nopal of Talavera, of Barro Negro, of colonial furniture and Santa Clara's candies, of Papantla flying pole dancers, of Tasco silversmiths, of Jacuintlapan weavers. This Nopal on my forehead, its banner, its volcano, its ego and its pride, Aztlan, Hanuna, Refuge of Egrets, Turtle Island, Registry into the Navajo, Luiseño, and Simsian Nations, Sustenance for our heirs to combat droughts and famine, wars and conquests, swords and Bibles for centuries to come and a few millennia more.
And finally, here's David, a longtime newspaper editor in Chico, California, whose staff is scarcely a quarter of what it used to be. David's friends and neighbors and readers didn't just lose their community. Their entire town was reduced to ashes in a matter of hours. I'm David Little. I'm the editor of the Enterprise Record, the Orville Mercury Register. One of our papers is the Paradise Post. So my great-grandfather came here in the 1920s to work for the Chico Record. And then my grandfather worked for the Enterprise and then the Record and the Enterprise Record when they combined in 1948. My father sold advertising for the Enterprise Record in the 60s. Chico is a fun place to grow up. Still is a perfect place to raise a family, which is why I don't envision myself leaving. If I make it one more week, I'll work daily newspapers for 40 years. And newspapers are vitally important to me. I, I don't know what our society would be like without them, but the blessing of being able to be the editor of a newspaper in the town where you were born and the place where you grew up and the place where your friends and family have lived and still do live, it's been a dream that I, I never would have envisioned when I was a kid. You know, I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a newspaper editor, but I'm so thankful that I was. On the morning of November 8th, the most destructive wildfire in California history, the Camp Fire, began ripping through the town of Paradise, raging toward Chico. I woke up that day and, you know, I always have the TV news on in the background while I'm getting ready and, and try to get in the office by 8 o'clock. I had no idea that there was anything going on, but when I got out to the driveway in my house, you know, this 30 miles away from the ignition of the fire, the sky was black in the eastern sky. The western sky was blue as could be, and that's what I was seeing in my house as I was getting ready for work. But the minute I got out to the driveway, there was this black cloud like a bomb had exploded over the Sierras. And, you know, we have fires here every summer, so it was obvious what it was. And so drove as fast as I could down here. We have one full-time photographer, but he's been out on leave uh, for a couple of months. So we walked in that day with no photographers to cover this monumental story. Our uh, morning reporter, the one who's always here first every day, she was already working on this story. Still had no inkling of how big it was going to get, but you could tell it was different. So I got up on top of the building, took a photo, ran that with her story and then by the time that was done you know which is probably about 8 15 in the morning um then the newsroom started filling up with people the homes the homes are becoming a home it's blackout conditions any unit at the river hospital we've got four people trapped in the basement sounds like it's surrounded by fire and they're safe underneath but they can't get out someone's abandoned the vehicle in the roadway north of you i'm going to try and get out we were listening to the scanner, you know, it's blaring in our newsroom, all newsrooms every day. And um, it's, it's, it's scary when you hear panic in the voices of first responders and firefighters who are always cool and collected people. You could tell bad things were happening and we acted accordingly, knowing that it was a big deal. Out of here. 
first morning was really really rough my uh, my wife and mother-in-law were up in paradise that morning and you know I'm listening to the scanner and texting and saying get out and and uh, everybody was going through situations like that you know So 10 people in our building lost their homes, and then probably a similar number of carriers who were independent contractors lost their homes. Four other employees were evacuated, and their homes were okay when they were finally able to make it back home. Three people were missing for the first weekend, but all three are okay. So it was really nerve-wracking. And, you know, you, you not only know your coworkers who who work here, but everybody has connections and friends and family and ties to Paradise because it's 15 miles away. It's not, you know, we're, we're one community. It was uh, logistically very difficult to try to keep your mind on your work while offering up your house or your extra rooms to people who needed them, trying to make sure everybody was okay. I don't know, it's hard to explain. And the whole day of the fire and the aftermath has been such a helpless feeling of, you know, you want to help, but you can't help 25,000 people. And, you know, maybe you can help a few, maybe you can help just one. And so it sounds, it sounds corny, but it's like, this is all we have to offer. You know, we can help get out news and accurate information on our website as quickly as possible and on Twitter and, and, and in that print edition, you know, this edition for people who are in evacuation centers. So you, you do the work because you know it's a benefit. But there were some people who had to leave early that first night because they were being evacuated. And in a time like that, you know, you're, you're people first and journalists second. And so you go out and take care of what you need to take care of. There's never any doubt what comes first. We heard from people who say, you know, we're not going to put up Christmas lights this year because it just doesn't seem appropriate. I've heard from friends who say they're not going to buy Christmas gifts instead donate money to the campfire relief, which is a great sentiment. It's really hard to go on and pretend like everything's the same. Nothing's happened, you know. When you drive by the fairgrounds and there's a parking lot full of travel trailers or tents, even, and um, you know, no, no one. There's not a not, there's not a lot of holiday spirit around here. Um, let's put it that way. The one shining light we saw it at Thanksgiving was just there are so many people who want to help the community and, and there were you know by all accounts more volunteers there than there were people to eat the free meal 
and uh, and that makes you feel good. You know, like this community will recover, and there's nobody trying to rush the recovery process right now. When people don't have socks or or, or warm clothes and are sleeping in tents when it gets down to 32, like it did last night, you realize what's truly important, and it's not the things under the tree or how big your meal is on Christmas night it's so many other things that talk about perspective you know these people have nothing and yet they still smile because they have their dog or their loved one or their vehicles or you know they they got out with something and and they are happy that they have a life I love being around people like that because it puts things in perspective no one complains about their little petty problems after you hear a story like that You know, this season feels like the ultimate gray area in so many ways. We eat richly as the land goes bare. We huddle around lights in the darkness, and we create pockets of warmth in the cold. We find things to celebrate with our communities, whatever they look like and wherever we are. Check out our show notes to see David Little's iconic photo of the Paradise Fire and get music details, Gilbert's tamales recipe, and more at voicesofmontereybay.org slash gray area. That's gray with an A. And please review or rate us over on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find us. And tag us on social media, hashtag gray area podcast. Be sure to tune in for our next episode where we explore the end of life and what the law says about it. Music for this episode was by Ketza, Mon Plaisir, Blue Dot Sessions, Dr. Turtle, John Bartman, and Lobo Loco, all from the Free Music Archive. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. And I'm Mara Reynolds. From Gray Area, we're wishing you a very gray holiday season and a peaceful new year. 